0: Hey, welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. This is episode 18. And this week, we've got Charlie Doherty with uh, Wells Fargo Securities. He is based out of North Carolina and he covers the commercial real estate, housing, and construction sector. And uh, you can actually sign up in our community, which you never want to forget to miss. We've got links there on how you can sign up for emails uh, with information that they put out consistently on the economy. And it's actually very good. This week, we talk about uh, commercial, how it's doing, everything from apartments to retail, opportunities, foreclosures and if we're on the other side of the pandemic uh, recovery. And if there's anything post-election we should keep our eye out on, you won't want to miss this week. Hey, welcome back to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast, the podcast for real estate professionals dedicated to driving business using data. I'm Aaron Norris with co-host Sean O'Toole with Property Radar. And today we are happy to welcome Charles Doherty, Vice President and Economist with Wells Fargo Security. Thank you for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Hey, Charlie, explain a little bit about Wells Fargo Securities. I was not familiar with that branch of uh, Wells Fargo.
1: Yeah, so Wells Fargo Securities is a part of uh, overall Wells Fargo. Um, this part of the, the overall bank is more involved in capital markets, uh, investment banking, things like that. So we're our own kind of uh, separate entity, but we are a part of uh, Wells Fargo. So. As part of Wells Fargo Securities, uh, we have a team of economists, of which, you know, I'm a part of. Um, so, as I was just saying, you know, we, we have about 13 people. We dedicate, you know, 100% of our time of following, you know, what's happening in the economy. Uh, we produce a monthly forecast for the economy, which ranges from, you know, what's going to happen to real GDP, what's going to happen to uh employment growth, what's going to happen to, you know, uh, interest rates, things like that. Um, so then we, you know, of course, you know, follow the incoming data that we get um, and then we write our analysis and I'll just sort of tell you where you and your uh, listeners or viewers can find that, you wells wellsfargo.com backslash economics. All of our reports are there. They're all free. You don't have to be a client. Um, you can sign up for our email distribution list. Uh, you can choose what type of you know, uh, research you're going to receive, whether it's housing or commercial real estate, or maybe you're just interested in what's happening uh, with the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. So you can sort of uh, curate your, your list to what your interests are. So again, wellsfargo.com backslash economics, you can find me. All my information there, um, but that's basically what our group does, and you know that's what we focus on every
2: day. Do you guys publish everything uh, out there, or is some stuff you know uh, on, you know only for clients?
1: Um, as part of the economics group, it's it's all out there; it's all publicly available. Uh, there's other parts of our research, like equity research, that's just for the clients, but. Uh, the economics part um, is widely available.
0: I did post links in our community to how to sign up for that very easily. I was actually turned on uh, to your work by our CMO at Property Radar. And so I get your emails all the time on anything on housing. And it's, it's impressive. You guys do some really great work. Now, you're oh, specifically, you. specifically real estate and commercial. How did you fall into real estate?
1: So I, uh, I've i been following uh, real estate for, you know, quite a while now. Um, I really started, I, I used to work for a, a company that sort of compiles economic data. And I, I was part of the regional group. So you have the national economy and then sort of separate from that, you have what's going on, you know, at a regional or, you know, local basis. So um, I was in charge of covering, you know, different, you know, individual markets what's going on in their economies. So, of course, you know, part of that is figuring out what the, the you know, real estate is doing in those local economies because it's such an important driver uh, for the rest of the economy. Um, so that's sort of where I first started, um, you know, covering real estate markets. Um, and then soon after that, I worked for a, a very large building products manufacturer um, and, you know, they, they make basically everything that's surrounding you right now, walls, you know, ceiling tiles, um, uh, basically everything, right? So as part of their, you know, their, you know, group, basically what I was tasked with doing was sort of following all different types of um, residential and commercial real estate because they were, you know, the, the entities that were buying our products. so. Um, that's sort of how I transitioned from, you know, there to now, you know, where I, you know, primarily am focused on, you know, the sort of what's ongoing and what's happening, you know, with both residential and commercial, uh, real estate. Okay.
2: And what's Wells Fargo's primary reason for, you know, uh, you're creating this research, putting it out publicly, um, is it, is it kind of a marketing effort or are they using it in internal decision-making or, uh, you know, decision or, you know, client decision-making? Or, you know, how does your work typically get used? So
1: I would say all of the above, um, you know, certainly internally. Um, I mean, think about what's happening, you know, right now when everybody has so many questions on what's happening with the economy. So right now, we spend a whole lot of our time speaking with clients and customers and trying to, you know, uh, relay our insights on what we think is going to happen to the economy uh, over the next few years. Because everybody, you know, you know, everybody is sort of wondering, you know, what's the trajectory of the economy? What's going to happen? You know, it's a big question. So that's sort of how we get put to use. Um, and. You know, before, you know, COVID, pre-pandemic era, you know, we spent a lot of time traveling on the road and going, you know, in person and sort of explaining, um, you know, our economic outlook and explaining, you know, how we think the economy is going to fare, how we think housing markets are going to fare at a, you know, a high level. Um, So, uh, you know, to answer that question, I think it's really all of the above.
0: (laughs) covid I guess how we should jump in um are, are you surprised where we're at today uh, maybe compared to six months ago
1: uh you know it, it's if you kind of go back in time right to february or march when everything really started to um you know pick up speed here um it, it's been a, a long seven months and it's you know i don't want to say it's gone as expected but i think if you listen to what the experts were saying in march and april you know this was always going to be um you know more of a long term event than what you know a lot of people were initially sort of expecting um so you know we 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 knew it was bad um uh, we knew it was going to take a long time for them to you know develop a vaccine you know reports are now that saying okay we're we have over 200 vaccines uh, under development worldwide. You know, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, one of those things works. Um, but from the onset of this, um, we knew it was going to be, you know, uh, very serious and very, very bad uh, in terms of a public health perspective. Um, in terms of, you know, the economy, uh, that was probably more of, uh, you know, it's still sort of a uh, big question mark uh frankly right because heading into this you know how we sort of forecast what the economy is going to do is you know we plug prior economic data into an economic model and that sort of susses out the trends and tells you you know what the current trends are going to how they're going to take you over the next you know over the short term and that'll give you you know a forecast right um so what happened with COVID is basically all of the economic data got so bad and deteriorated by such a large extent that it essentially broke all of our economic models. So that made our jobs much more difficult in forecasting the economy, which is part of what we get paid to do. Um, So it has been a challenge uh, because this is such a, a historically unprecedented situation that we found ourselves in.
0: In the commercial space, what are what are some of the key data th- points that you're looking at that were just completely thrown out the window because of COVID?
1: So actually, commercial uh, data um, kind of tends to lag the rest of you know the economic data that we look at. So one thing uh, uh, I was just talking to somebody about is you know are the cap rates, right? Cap rates haven't really done anything. Property prices haven't really showed much movement over the past seven months. And you know, the reason for that is because um, because of the just how crazy things have been. There's, there's this huge gap between you know, where buyers and sellers perceive values to be. So there's just no sales transactions. So you need those transactions to actually get the cap rate, get the property price, et cetera. So none of that's really happening because nobody knows what next year is going to look like. You know, the, the way you derive value uh, or you come up with the value of a building is it's the intersection of perceived values between buyers and sellers. So no, there's so much disagreement there um, that there's simply no transaction. So in the commercial space, you know, there's actually if you look at the data lines, um, there's actually very, you know, or relatively few indications that any like a severe crisis happened at all. Now, eventually, the data will reflect what happened. but if you look at you know you know what's happening with prices or cap rates, which is what you know a lot of people in commercial real estate you know focus on, that's not really showing anything now, if you drill a little deeper and if you look at what's going on you know underneath the hood, if you look at things like you know uh, demand for commercial space or net absorption, uh, or if you look at rents in different sectors, those are showing you know quite Quite substantial uh, impacts. So, for example, you know, we just put out a, a, a research piece um, on apartment rents, right? So, if you look at apartment rents since about you know February, what you see is in certain very large uh, major markets, like you know the classic example has become uh, New York City or San Francisco. You see apartment rents just declining at a very, you know, very strong rate. Um, Interestingly enough, you know, in other parts of the country, uh, rents are holding up better, but, you know, these, these, these are the sort of indications that the pandemic is starting to have, you know, a, a very huge impact on commercial real
2: estate. Yeah I mean I think that's it's a great point um that you made and it's like you know uh, Bruce uh, I mean Aaron's dad is is famous for having uh told everybody to get out of uh the single family uh, market in at the end of 2005 beginning of 2006 I made a similar decision and um but it really wasn't until you know September 2008 that I think the markets and everybody else really realized the crisis. You know, so that's, you know, almost three, you know, plus years later. So these things do take a while to work through. It's one of the reasons I love real estate, right, is because you do get, if you're paying attention, you do get, you know, you do get to see some things ahead of time if, if you're looking at the right things. Um, drilling in on, um, you know, so, have you guys worked on models around like, okay, we are seeing some softness in rents, right? And so when we get back to a normal uh, market where there's normal level of transactions going, right? And assuming those rents stay low, right? We can start to predict maybe what starts happening to prices and that kind of thing. Is that stuff you're working on, like various scenarios? Like, okay, if if rents stay at this level, people are signing one-year leases now, you know, there's rent control in places like San Francisco, so even like a short- term impact to rents could potentially lock in long-term impacts on rents.
1: Yeah, uh, we we do look at that, and um, it's really hard to judge um, or even quantify at this point um, because there's just so much uncertainty out there. Um, you know, going back to the whole rents thing. You know, New York and San Francisco rents have come down. They've come down quite a bit, um, you know, but the thing you have to keep in the back of your mind is they were pretty high to begin with, right? So how, how far above the equilibrium were they to even before the crisis? But values, um,
2: values probably were based on those high rents and that assumption that those rents would keep getting higher, right? And now yeah. that, that mindset's been burst.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, And, you know, again, it's, it's very sort of challenging, right? Because um, if you think about, you know, where values are, for example, you know, New York city versus, you know, other parts of the country, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. Right. And what's been happening in New York city for the past few years where there actually has been a, population, you know, out-migration, right, for for a lot of years now. And Charlotte has been on the receiving end of that, where we've had a, a large influx of population growth. So, one, I'm not so sure, you know, um, any of that was either baked into those, you know, pricing models or not. I mean, assuming we, they are. Um, but, you know, one of the trends that we've kind of seen – and we're kind of trying to determine now is you know how 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 much uh, of what we're seeing now is just sort of an acceleration of pre-pandemic trends. So, like I mentioned, the the you know outflow of residents from New York City, which began three or four years ago, really, um, you know, how much of that is just an acceleration. Um, now, so when you're trying to predict, you know, okay, what's what's when's the turnaround? Where's the inflection point here? You know, we we might actually be closer to that than many people think, um, because you know we we sort we sort of saw this trend happening you know years ago, so we're kind of further in the ball game than, than many people think.
0: In, in California, um, uh, we've spoken at the Apartment Owners Association for over a decade. And uh, last year, the question got asked, are, are we in a, an apartment bubble? And uh, we sort of asked the question to the audience, would you buy your current asset at the prevailing cap rates? And there was rolling laughter across the audience. And we're like, there's your answer. And that was pre-pandemic. So were we just, just really taking advantage of cheap money and driving up rates to where it didn't make any sense um, in markets like new york's and california
1: you know uh, maybe a little bit um the thing you know going back there was uh you know some concern with property prices for you know apartment buildings especially if you look you know if you look where all of the investment was made you know, unfortunately, over the past decade, the investment was centered in these places that are now being hit quite hard, like New York, like San Francisco. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's hard to say because, again, it it's, comes back to a supply and demand story. You know, the supply, we were building a lot of apartment buildings and prices were going up alongside that. Um, if you look at the demand for apartments, um, you know, heading into this thing, demand for apartments was pretty strong. Now, I'm not saying that justifies the property prices a lot. You know, everybody was seeing in the different markets, but demand for apartments was holding up. Uh, you know, even past the our expectations at least, because we were saying for years heading into this thing that this was an, a potential area of weakness within commercial real estate, but demand kept you know sort of surprising and surprising and. I think it's a demographic story when it, when it sort of comes down to it. And I think that demographic story is still, you know, largely gonna hold moving forward, right? The demographic story is if you look at, you know, if you break out the population by age, right? We have a whole lot of baby boomers and we have a whole lot of younger millennials. Well, those two segments of the population um, a lot of them are actually, you know, tend to be renters, right? So if you're just graduating college and you're going out to the job market, uh, you're, you're probably renting an apartment. If you're a baby boomer, you know, maybe you're sick of owning a house. You're sick of taking care of your backyard. You want to be around all the, the restaurants and, you know, cultural amenities that, you know, urban areas provide. Um, so that's that's sort of this inherent demand for uh for for rentals right now how much does that change now that you know the that you know we've had this COVID 19 crisis and things are changing um it's going to change clearly but again there's just so so many you know uh, of this population of these younger millennials and baby boomers who are looking to retire that's going to support demand for apartments um you know as people leave center cities and, and, you know, the residential real estate market picks up. So I'm not saying like, okay, apartments are fine. The apartment markets, you know, in the clear, but I'm saying it's probably not going to be as bad as, as people think just because I, I think the demand for apartments is a little bit stronger, you know, than what people realize.
2: We could, I, you know, I, uh, the pendulum's always swinging, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, Swung way over here to like get out of town, get away from everybody. Right. Right. But after a year or two of that, like, I expect people are going to be like, Oh my God, I want to be downtown and I want to go to restaurants, you know, after COVID's, you know, cleared up. So I think that, you know, the doom of one thing or the other is always kind of overstated and pendulum's always swinging. Yeah.
1: I definitely think there's going to be a lot of pent up demand for, you know, like you said, Um, restaurants or travel. Um, I do think once we get beyond it, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a different story.
0: Has there been any research done on uh, how long, so we're seven months in the work from home thing has become real popular as people plant roots and get used to that. Is this the new normal?
1: I think, um, I think a little bit. Um, I, you know, with, The way I kind of think about it, and uh, I think other people are thinking about it, is, you know, is everybody going to be working from home forever? No. Are a certain slice of people going to be working from home one or two days a week? Yeah, probably. Right. Because it's while, you know, we have worked from home and it's been generally successful. I'd say, right, for both employee and employer, right? Employees have been more productive than they, they probably thought, and that's probably good news for um, uh, employers. Um, but it's really hard to replace, you know, the, the office environment, you know, as it is, and why, you know, it, offices sort of emerged, you know, as something that, you know, we do in our workforce. Right. So it's hard to replace the collaboration, the productivity, innovation, the spouse, away from
2: your kids. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the other side of it too, I think, is you know, you know, some people like working at home, some people like working at offices, and they genuinely, genuinely look forward to getting up and going in and being with their coworkers. They find themselves more productive in the office environment. Um, and they kind of view it as sort of a second home right So they enjoy that and that's part of you know the contract where they they say I'm, I'm working for you and I'm going to give you you know eight nine ten hours of my day and this is where I'm going to be. Um, so it's it, it certainly you know the office I think is going to be still be the predominant you know uh, you know, workspace right but I, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see this hybrid, you know, workforce where, okay, it, it, you know, you really don't have to be in the office, and if you do have to be in the office, maybe it's one or two days a week. So we're going to kind of keep up with this work from home policy. Um, so that's probably more of the you know the longer term thing that's going to happen, because you know on the other side, you know, employers. Um, you know, because of everything that's happened, everybody's, you know, facing these really large financial pressures. So employers are at the same time looking to say, hey, how can we reduce occupancy costs? So that might be a win-win where you can reduce occupancy costs a little bit, but while maintaining, uh, you know, similar levels of productivity growth that you saw beforehand. Um, so again, that could be a win-win, uh, just sort of a hybrid workforce.
2: Jump a little into uh, data, and uh, you know. So, as a real estate economist, right? You're you're looking at lots of data, and um, what what are your what are your favorite data sets or data indicators or releases from others or just you know wide open there? What are the what are the things that you like can't wait uh, to get each day, each week, each month, whatever?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So. The the vast majority of data or economic data that we look at are either uh, lagging indicators or coincident indicators, just meaning that's what's happening yesterday or today, or what just happened last week or last month. But in those, you know, buried in some of these indicators are leading indicators. Leading indicators are by far my favorite thing to look at because they make my job easier because we have to kind of predict what's going to happen. So I'll I'll give you an example. Um, Yesterday, you know, housing starts report comes out. Okay, the big number is, okay, housing starts rise 1.2%. You know, the the bulk of the gain was in single-family construction, while multifamily construction uh, fell in, in a big way. Um, You know, but underneath that, what we saw is building permits. So before you start anything, you have to file a building permit. So what we saw was, okay, a a big rise in single family permitting and, you know, some weakness in multifamily permitting. So that kind of gives you, okay, well, if you think about permits, you know, 90% of permits eventually become starts within a month or two. So that tells you something about what's going to happen next month with housing starts, So let's just say, okay, now next month, single family housing starts are going to be strong and multifamily permits or housing starts, you know, might be weak. So that's, you know, an example of that. Another example is, um, you know, today, you know, mortgage applications came out. So this is another favorite indicator of mine because they come out every single week and they tell you, you know, okay, what's the demand for uh, home buying out there? So, you know, we saw this really strong, you know, uh, recovery in purchase purchase applications um, since about April, Um, they've kind of leveled off in recent weeks and they kind of continue to soften a little bit. So that tells us, it's like, okay, housing market, people are still buying homes, you know, at a a pretty rapid and strong rate. Um, But the fact that mortgage applications for purchase have sort of come down a little bit, that means you know, we're not going much higher. So we're gonna be strong, but we're not just, we're not gonna to continue to to be on that growth path that we were on just a few months ago. So those types of leading indicators, um, I, I think are, you know, my favorites and I, what I, you know, get out of bed for.
2: <laughs> awesome. And what else, uh, maybe a kind of a top uh, five or 10 list of other things you watch, the forbearance uh, data. Um, and, and are you looking at, are you mostly looking at data that others have compiled or are you looking at raw, you know, data like public records, um, you know, data and that kind of thing as well?
1: So, uh, all of it, right. So one sort of sort of interesting thing that's happened, um, going back to, you know, COVID broke our economic models is we, uh, as an economist, we are looking for any type of indication that might give us, uh, you know, direction on what the next few months are going to entail. So that means looking at every possible data source um, that we can find and sort of judging on how valid or how robust that data actually is. So we, we look at a ton of sort of, you know, what you might call uh, like a high frequency data set. You know, for example, uh, Google has a lot of high-frequency mobility data. Um, there's a company called Homebase that, you know, gives, um, you know, uh, indications of how small businesses are doing in terms of hiring. Um, so we're looking at all data across the board, and, and sort of this interesting thing that's happened is, you know, we've come to more rely upon uh, that, that sort of all these alternative data sets to sort of help us form judgments about, you know, what's going to happen.
0: How close do you pay attention to politics at the state level? So California example in the commercial spaces, considering the Proposition 15, which you do is Mm -hmm. split roll taxes and has the potential to change some values, I would think.
1: Yeah, we uh, so we we do pay attention to local, you know, state and local level, you know, politics. We stay away from propositions and things like that, or pol- you know, potential policy changes, just because there's always different things floating around, and you're never sure if they will actually come to, you know, fruition. Uh, so we kind of stay away from, you know, the, those sort of granular type, you know, propositions, where you know. It, we're not exactly sure what the impact is going to be because uh, of of all those different factors. So, you know, we pay more attention to, you know, what's happening nationally. Um, Of course, we've got a big election coming up. We we've done uh, a lot of work on trying to figure out, you know, how that's going to impact the economy, how it's going to impact certain areas of the economy. It's very difficult because again, you know, it's 2020, who knows what's going to happen. Once we, once we actually know you know, the, the, who's gonna be in place, uh, then we can kind of start to really dig in deep and say, okay, this is how X affects Y, so Y affects Z, uh, et cetera.
2: You mentioned, we, we talked to uh, Doug Duncan a few weeks ago, chief economist at Fannie Mae. And you know, he said one of the things they worry about for housing is what the impacts to small business are going to be. And you just mentioned a uh, small business. It sounded kind of like a company you looked at for small business hiring. Uh, what about uh, closings and openings and other? Is there other things there? How much do you look at that small business data, and and how does it play into your housing models or real estate models? Uh
1: so. Uh it it plays more uh into you know the judgmental aspects of our models. You know, what that means is you know, we have models and we have very specific variables that drive the models. Um small business formation isn't a big part of those. Um, um but we do have a you know this judgmental aspect where we can um you know look and see what's happening you know at, at a large scale and say okay this might this might affect you know that this housing market or this might affect you know demand for office space um so it's certainly something we pay close attention to um more on a national scale uh Wells Fargo actually has a small business survey that we release uh on a quarterly basis um so that's that's shown, you know, generally what you would expect. Where we, we saw, um, you know, confidence, small business confidence, kind of you know plummet earlier in the year, and it's come back, uh, but not to the extent where you know you could say there's there's a full recovery. Um, overall, you know, I think we're all aware at this point that small businesses are are probably been more impacted by everything that's happened. Um, compared to, you know, larger companies with bigger balance sheets. Um, So, you know, there's not a whole lot of great granular data on this. You know, one, one of the things we're actually looking forward to, which will provide more detailed estimates, is, you know, the 2020 census, which should give you a better, you know, indication of business formation and how actual counts of, you know, small businesses have either you know, grown or declined as a result of this pandemic. Um, so, of course, it's important, you know, um, there, there's a whole lot of small businesses out there. Um, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a big thing that's going to have long lasting impacts. We just don't have all the data to sort of quantify what those impacts are going to be. Is
0: there any so, concern uh, about the census data being impacted by COVID at all?
1: Uh, I think so. I I mean, if you, you know, the the census is a very, very important thing that we do in this country um, because a lot of the data that we get is sort of derived, um, you know, either directly or indirectly from census counts. So it's extremely important for uh, a whole lot of things. And if you look at sort of some of the data that the census has been collecting, uh, over the past seven months or so, um, you can tell there, there has been, um, an impact and not necessarily, it's not the fault of the census. It's just, they have to go and a lot of the times, you know, either make phone calls or, uh, figure some way out to contact, uh, you know, households to get this information. So one of the things that happened, um, if you pay attention to home ownership rates, Right. You, if you know what happened in the last quarter of data that we got, it, was, it showed the, the strongest rise in home ownership, you know, on record, right? So that's what the data says. Now, is that data correct or is it as correct as it could be? Probably not, because if you look at what the census said, they kind of admitted. They said, hey, you know, we can't go house to house anymore because of social distancing and, you know, these new COVID norms. Um, so, you know, we, we, relied on phone calls and we got a very low response rate. That low response rate makes, you know, us making, or there an error makes it more likely there's an error in this data. Uh, so this is the data. This is what we collected. It showed a really strong rise in the home ownership rate. Uh, I'm sure home ownership did rise because of everything else that's happened that we can, you know, we have better data on. Um, but that's just one example of the challenges I think the census is going to have with could collecting it data. Just, and it's very important.
2: It could be it was just easier to reach homeowners than it was to reach renters. Right? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah. true. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Um, coming back to uh, small business, because you cover all real estate, not just housing, right? So um, we talked a little bit about multifamily and the outlook there. Where Where are you guys on? you know, retail and, and uh, let's start with uh, maybe retail and, you know, uh, office and some of those places that, you know, where small impacts to small business may have a pretty big impact on the underlying real estate values.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, real estate or uh, retail, excuse me, retail is one of those areas that it's sort of been uh, in dire straits you know even before the pandemic it, w- it was tough going you know for um a lot of the retail sector and clearly you know one of the biggest impacts there and we're sort of seeing this even clearer now is you know competition from e-commerce retailers like you know, you know all the big names right so you know that unfortunately is going to cause some weakness in the retail sector um you know Probably over the short term, over the longer term, however, you know, retail is the sector and it's this thing that's always been in the state of flux, right? So if you go back to the '50s and the '60s, was, that's when the malls started to you know crop up around the country, you know, big box retailers, and you know, well, you know, before that it was these huge department stores on every corner in every city. Um, so there's always been this, you know, this you know, continuous state of flux and retail. So, you know, the way, you know, I view things is, you know, with e-commerce coming in and taking up an ever growing share uh, of transactions right in that market, um, you know, uh, eventually, you know, we're going to continue. That's, that, that's going to, that effect's going to be there, right. We're going to see more retailers start to implement that and, and work with that. Um, and we probably will see a turnaround, you know, sometime, probably sooner than what most people are expecting, um, uh, you know, in retail properties that, you know, the, the, the things are, will adjust, I guess is my point. You know, if you think of some of the things that we're seeing success beforehand, um, some of the retail properties uh, were moving away from enclosed indoor spaces anyway, and they were more walkable and outdoor you know, I think that fits very well into, you know, what a post-COVID environment will look like in terms of retail space. Cause I think, you know, I think people still people still like to go to retail stores, right? There's obviously things you can do, you know, more efficiently online. That'll more of that stuff will move online, right? But people still like to go and, and you know, try on clothes to certain to a certain extent to you know, engage with different products, learn how to use them. If you look at younger demographics, Generation Z, you know, there's some early evidence that they, you know, sort of like to go out and and experience, you know, in-store shopping more than other generations. Um, So I, I think, you know, I think the turnaround in retail is probably coming a little sooner than what people would expect. That's not to minimize, you know, retail is certainly has a few headwinds ahead of it. Um but yeah, I think that turnaround's coming, you know, sooner rather than later. Um you know so for taking
2: at the mall isn't over yet. (laughs) Yeah,
1: right. Um so yeah, so there I mean and if you look at other you know types of commercial real estate properties, um the you know, we talked about offices a little bit, and I think, you know, the big thing that's sort of limiting offices right now, you know, is again, going back to this uncertainty where, you know, uh, nobody really knows when that return to the office is going to be. You know, we're fairly confident that, you know, people will eventually go back to the office. And I think employers are, you know, sort of anxious to get their employees back to a certain extent um so so it's just that it, it depends on the timetable for uh the virus which frankly nobody really knows probably next year at some point um that's when you know companies will have more of an idea of how much office space they they really need they'll probably have firmer plans put in place with, okay, this part of the workforce is going to stay at home. This part of the workforce is going to come into the office. We're going to do these rotations or come in in staggered shifts, et cetera. Next year, you know, that'll probably, you know, start to, to, to take hold. Um, but the good thing about the, the office market from a, you know, high level is, you know, heading into this thing, the office market was in a pretty good spot. Now I'm talking about in terms of supply and demand. We all know what can happen when you have an imbalance in either of those: or too much supply, uh, or, or or too little demand, or vice versa. Um, so the office market was really balanced, you know, as of or, you know early 2020, right? So when you're coming in from a position of strength, that's going to allow you to recover quicker. So we weren't overbuilding; we didn't build too many offices you know, over the past 10 years. Um, so hopefully that, you know, that sort of seeds the ground for faster growth uh, sooner, which would be a good thing.
0: While we're talking about Office, I was just thinking, you know, the the company brand I have not heard of in a while, WeWork. It, is co-working sort of passe now? Or, or is that so, you know, 2019? Or are we going to see a comeback?
1: That's, um, that's a good question. Uh, th- that was certainly... Uh, an interesting trend that we saw you know over the past few years and then you know if you just think about you know what's happened with you know in terms of social distancing and just a general aversion to you know enclosed indoor spaces that would make me you know more pessimistic about you know co-working you know rather than being an optimist so I, i yeah i do think it'll be challenging for co-working companies. And, you know, it wasn't just WeWork. There's a a whole list of uh, co-working companies that are in basically every major market. And, you know, what they kind of have to offer is kind of interesting. And and I think one of the the good things about co-working space was always that, you know, it it wasn't just, you know, for entrepreneurs uh, or people, you know, starting their own businesses or things like that. You know, we saw some really large companies leasing up, uh, or subleasing space, you know, with some of these co-working companies. And we actually thought that was kind of, that was good because if, if a company was trying to test out or stick their toe, in, you know, in a certain market, they could go in and, you know, lease up or sublease some space uh, for, you know, and not make that longer term commitment. So I think, you know, it, it kind of greased the wheels a little bit of, of companies expanding their footprint, which I think was a good thing. Unfortunately, you know everything that's happened over the past few months, you know, kind of will make that challenging moving ahead.
2: Hmm. Hospitality. Yeah, I think we, we actually, I have a, a tenant in one of my office buildings as a co-working space and he is desperately trying to expand um, because he can put fewer people in and hmm. he's got more demand than he's ever had uh, before. Um but we are in a little bit different situation. We're in a resort town that everybody is moving to and then realizing, okay, I got to get away from the okay, kids, yeah. You yeah. Know, whatever. Yeah. So it's a little bit, a little bit different, but um, you know, you know, there was, there's, there's working, but I also wonder about like, you know, if this desire for, um, well, I, I think one thing that might come out of this is for businesses to have a desire for greater flexibility. So maybe there changes in leasing terms, uh, going forward and changing in, you know, rather than vanilla space that you come in and spend so much money building out, um, you know, co-working kind of pre-builds out these really beautiful yeah. spaces for you and gives you a more flexible term than you'd get normally when you take over floors of a building or an entire building. Do you think there'll be a trend more? You think we'll see some changes in the underlying contract terms going forward?
1: Oh yeah, I mean without a doubt. I mean, if, if there's anything, you know, I, I think we're certain to see changes around the margins, right, with a lot of everything. But certainly for you know leasing terms and things like that. Um hard to say what those you know larger scale impacts are going to be, but you know, if there's one thing we know, changes around the margins can have really big impacts. So I think, uh, you know, of course we're going to see those, you know, types of changes as sort of companies adjust and, and, you know, uh, occupiers sort of figure out what they need and what's what's going to work best for them. Um, So, yeah, absolutely.
2: So landlords that want to stay ahead of it and don't want to have vacant space should start thinking about air filtration systems and, uh, you know, maybe pre designing space to be a little bit more covid friendly, maybe a move back towards individual office versus so much open space some of those kinds of things might uh might yeah yeah or, even what gets built going forward, right yeah, you know higher rates of
1: technology adoption is something we see a lot of companies doing you know it's could be as simple or, or maybe complicated, I'm not sure, but as. You know, installing specialized buttons on the, the elevator or something like that, so you don't have to touch it, or or, or you know thing. things like that, or installing, uh, you know, generally just more technology that allows you to, you know, you know, uh, abide by all these social distancing requirements that we're going to see, and surely all these companies uh, are going to need to implement. So that's you know that's just one example. I think of something that you know companies should probably think about. Um, moving ahead,
2: I think. I think a lot of people spend so much time thinking about all the negatives of this, but there are a lot of positives and a lot of opportunity um, as well. I think even for those building owners that maybe are, you know, struggling right now, if they look at the opportunities and the way to do things differently, right, they probably are going to be the first to recover.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that, that that's true. You know, I I always try to, you know, light a candle versus, you know, cursing the darkness and it's (laughs) looking ahead. There are definitely a lot of, you know, um, things that could be positive, you know, coming out of this, um, you know, especially, you know, across a broad number of commercial real estate, uh, properties. And, And one thing that we're kind of seeing right now, you know, industrial properties are doing very, very well. So this is another trend that we saw before, you know, there has been an impact uh, for sure from, you know, just the drop in global trade, which, you know, a lot of industrial properties are involved with. But if you think about, you know, uh, what's happening to retail and the opposite end of that is, you know, we need a whole lot more warehouses and distribution facilities and assortment centers and things like that so right now as these companies you know as these e-commerce companies sort of continue to expand what we're seeing is these where more and more warehouses pop up not just in the outskirts of town you know in in where wherever the real estate's cheapest but they're getting closer and closer to basically every major market so that's you know of course to to you know to get you know as fast as delivery as possible Um, so that's a that's a huge bright spot and that's probably not going anywhere um you know for a for a long time so if you're looking for you know things to look forward to you know this this rapid acceleration into e-commerce and to and for companies abilities to ship things to to customers in a very rapid time you know that that's that's here and that's going to be that's going to be uh you know something that it's going to be a big positive moving ahead
0: hospitality space any opportunities there that you're seeing
1: yes uh so you know clearly hospitality is you know it's uh you know if not the most impacted part of our entire economy right now uh, is you know hospitality, hotels, restaurants, um, you know large event spaces. Unfortunately, it's going to be a, a you know it's going to be you know a full recovery. There is probably some ways off. You think that was probably the first to get hit, and will probably be the last to recover. Unfortunately, and that's just because you know all of this is very close contact, in person, you know type of activities. Um, so. It's just one of those things that's going to depend on fully defeating uh, COVID nineteen and the pandemic, and then we can start to fully think about recovery. I mean, we are starting to see. You know, uh, I was just looking at uh, hotel occupancy rates uh, nationwide, right? And we've seen hotel occupancy rates have come up, right? They they went down, you know, they they plummeted. Really, they went down from you know high sixties to you know. 20% around there, you know, the deaths uh, of the crisis. So they've come back up. The occupancy rate is right around 50% right now nationwide. Um, but still there's that, you know, like I said, I was probably around 70% um, last year at this time. So there's still that gap that needs to be um, made up. And, and, you know, what can, you know, what can happen there. You know, obviously, you know, I, I think people are, are a little, you know, space confined and sick of being at home. So I think travel, leisure travel probably picks up. I think I think people, you know, are generally a little bit more okay with going and staying in a hotel than they were, you know, a few months ago. They're probably not thrilled about it, but they, I think that's, that's improving and improving as we go on. Um, the, the big thing holding, everything back there though is international travel and business travel. So business travel probably isn't going to come back for, you know, some time. Um, again, that's based on the virus. Um, and I think companies are going to be very cautious in sending people in a, you know, in a big way back out on the road. Um, you know, and international travel is sort of, you know, very similar to that. And, you know, I think, you know, uh, officials are going to be very reticent to sort of open up the gates again. And uh, that's just one unfortunate aspect of sort of, you know, where we found ourselves. So that's going to take a long time to come back, but you know, I'm a little bit more optimistic on the leisure travel side. Um, but unfortunately, you know, if you think business travel is probably 20% of all travel, you know, that's that 20% gap
2: that won't be filled. Is it really only 20%? I would have thought it would have been a higher percentage.
1: Yeah, so we looked at data from 2019, and and that's what it was. Um, so I'm sure it fluctuates, but that's you know uh, that's the numbers we came up with, um, at least according to the uh, ITA travel agency. But yeah, it, it's it, it's it's certainly a big slice, no matter you know what the actual number is, and and unfortunately, it's going to remain very depressed.
0: Are yeah. you fairly positive overall on where we're headed and is there anything if it happened in the next several months that you'd sort of step away and say nope gloves off now this is a free fall
1: (laughs) no i I do think we uh you know we are on the path to recovery right which is where you would want to be at this stage now the question is can we get where we're going faster or is there going to be something that slows us down um i I think you know if you look at the general you know economic drivers that you know kind of determine where commercial real estate or where uh, residential real estate is going to be um those those are looking pretty good and and we're still making gains now the thing is those gains are are becoming smaller as we go you know move ahead which is one um, a consequence of just the the depths of the losses that we saw in the early spring so it's only natural to have you know some cooling or moderation there Um, but we are you know we are firmly on the path to recovery you know it's it's going to be a long road um there are probably some things that could happen to get us back to where we were uh at the start of the year a little bit quicker Uh, but right now you know we think you know if you think about re- gdp you know the economic you know growth that we we kind of pay attention to you know our forecast calls for us getting back to where we were uh, at the start of the year uh, right in 2021 q3 right so that's about eight months away so it, it's still going to be a little while till we get there um, but we are on the right track so that's, I'm sort of, you know, cautiously optimistic that we'll continue uh, uh, to, to sort of stay on that track and then maybe, you know, we get some upside surprises as we move forward. I
0: had one more question. Do, no matter who wins the presidential election, is there any thought that some people are just on the sidelines waiting for some kind of stability or, or at least <laughs> what the next four years might look like? Um, to get off the fence and maybe we'll see the numbers increase again.
1: Yeah, that's, that's always a possibility. Um, you know, it, we did look and it's really hard to say because, you know, just everything that's happened in 2020, it's just completely, you know, it's just, you know, all, yeah, you know, whatever, but <laughs> you know, anyway, that's we did derailed. look at, so you know, the impact of elections and, and our economy, you know, in prior years, you know, and, and we, what we came up with is, you know, do elections impact the economy? Um, you know, a little bit. You know, do the results of the election impact the economy more? Yes. So one, the election itself, you know, if you hear reports saying, okay, there's the stock market's going to tank, or, you know, we're going to go into economic oblivion, if x y or z is elected that's probably not true right but the outcome of the election you know republican democrat the outcome of uh you know the the makeup of the senate and the house of representatives that's all very important that'll have an impact on the economy but the election itself is not going to impact the economy so we just have to wait and kind of see okay you know what are the results how is that going to impact things? How is that going to impact, um, you know, real estate? Because there's definitely a lot of important policy proposals that I think both yeah. candidates have and that are, you know, up for, you know, uh, up for change, really. Um, and that will have direct impacts. Um, but we just kind of have to wait to see, you know, what those you know results are going to be.
0: We here at that time, Mark, um, if uh, one more time, if people could find out where they would best connect with you online.
1: So if you go to uh, wellsfargo.com backslash economics, all of our information, our reports, our uh, forecast, that everything can be found on there. And you can sign up for our email distribution list and get everything
0: sent to you directly. Sounds great. Thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Data-Driven Real Estate Podcast. You can find show notes and links to some of the resources mentioned in the show at datadrivenrealestate.com. Click that, join the community, and you'll be forwarded to the Property Radar community where you can ask questions about the current show and even see upcoming guests and ask questions there. We'd love to engage with you in the community, so check it out. Please don't forget to like, favorite, subscribe, and share on your favorite platform where you're listening to the show. It helps us out a great deal. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.